You're listening to another great podcast in the MyMac Podcasting Network. Welcome to the Essential Apple Podcast, your home for news, views, security stories, technology, and all sorts of other related chit-chat that catches our attention. Hello listeners, welcome to this edition of Essential Apple. Um, and this week I'm pleased to report we actually have a few stories worth uh, talking about, which is good, which is good. Thank, uh, you know, thank goodness we had Adam last week because the news was very, very thin indeed. So that was, uh, that was fortuitous and um, I'm not alone this week either. Uh, Mac Jim is back. Hello Jim. Uh, good evening, or good afternoon, or good day. Yes, depending on when, when and where you listen to this episode. And also, uh, we have Steve from Geek's Corner. Hello again, Steve. Good afternoon. Right, well, being a British podcast, we have to do the British thing. Uh, the weather here is um, fairly bright, moderate cloud, but bloody cold. So there we are. So, mind you, it's better than it has been for uh, several days. We had some pretty nasty, wet, cold days. So there you are. How's the weather with you, Jim? Up there in Scotland? Uh, grey and cold. Grey and cold. Steve? It's actually sunny here in Wales, and it's about six degrees, so it's not too bad. Oh well, then you've, you've probably got the best of it then. I mean, it's bright I here, think but. You have. Right here, but not exactly what you call sunshine. I think it's about four degrees outside, so. It's at least dry. <laughs> yep, that is true. So, um, obviously, there are two big pieces of news this week, one of which has nothing to do technology and has to do with me, and that is I am pleased to say that I have secured myself a new uh, employment position. Hurrah! which after nearly a year of, uh, you know, being locked in my house is a large, you know, a big relief, I have to say. Thank you very much. There we are. Um, and the other big piece of news, which is, of course, Apple has discontinued the Mac Pro, uh, the iMac Pro. Uh, the Apple Store currently apparently says, buy now while stocks last and uh, no conf- build-to-order configurations are available. Um, and uh, to top that off, iMore have put out an update say Apple to discontinue the iMac Pro once stock runs out. And according to them, Apple have now confirmed that the uh, iMac Pro will be discontinued. Um, I'm slightly surprised that they've um, discontinued it before there's um, a new M series iMac, but um, apparently they are currently pointing most users towards the uh, 27-inch iMac, you know, one of the higher spec 27-inch iMacs. Um, What do you think about that, chaps? Uh, To be honest, I am a little bit surprised that they've waited, uh, they haven't waited until the new ones are announced, but I think there's a bit of a stopgap, so uh, I'm not really overall too shocked. No, I'm I'm much the same. I mean, even when the when the iMac Pro was announced, I think on this show we we said it felt like a you know a hot rodded uh, high end iMac. Um, 
And I mean, that came out, didn't it? When when they announced that there would be a new Mac Pro, but it would probably be 18 months to two years before it was available. So I, it always, to me, felt like a stopgap machine, you know, to accommodate higher end users. Um, yeah, it was, it was. It was basically gave um, gave you a means of getting the, the Pro uh, Mac and an iMac case. And it kept it going until the new one came out, but. It, it does seem a bit odd that they've dropped it completely, or near enough dropped it completely with no replacement. So does it suggest that uh, the iMac M1, when it comes out, will be so powerful that it's actually not needed? Well, I think that's that. You know, that seems to be the um, that seems to be the you know the implication because everybody is saying you know that well we'll know and uh, you know an M series iMac will be forthcoming in fairly short order. Um, I think that is the implication that the higher end M series um, Mac iMac will you know be be powerful enough to say that if you unless you actually need a Mac Pro you know with the ability to have ludicrous amounts of RAM and vast you know um, GPU cards and whatnot um, that mm. that the, the iMac Pro is superfluous. Um, it could be simply the the amount of sales of the iMac Pro against the Mac Pros uh, that didn't justify continuing it. So I suppose. Well, there is also that, isn't there? I suspect that the yeah, iMac Pro sold well. I think yeah. that I, I would guess, and obviously none of us have any, you know, none of us have any um, insight here, but I would guess that the iMac Pro sold well when it was announced mm-hmm. until the new Mac Pro launched, at which point, you know, a top-of-the-line top iMac Pro would set you back more than a you know than a lower end Mac Pro. I know the Mac Pro doesn't come with a screen, but I think once the Mac Pro launched, I think the iMac Pro was left a bit in the um... yeah. Plus, also the iMac Pro wasn't um, you you couldn't upgrade it over the years, whereas the Mac Pro you can you can swap out components and yeah make it yeah. more powerful. So I suppose yeah, the, the flexibility with the iMac Pro wasn't there. No, which is one of the reasons originally I said it, it reminded yeah. me very much of the um, of the two FX, which you know when Apple uh, released that machine was for the time you know blazingly fast. It had the ability mm-hmm. to have huge amounts of RAM for the time, um, but they hot rodded it in all sorts of ways. It had special RAM different from every other Mac on the market. They did things with the bus and. Um, a whole load of things to to you know screw for the time screaming power out of it, but it also left it in an evolutionary dead end, you know. Um, mm. And for for what it's worth, the uh, the two FX was nominally the most expensive Apple computer ever. Just for those who <laughs> want to know that, um, which I think it retailed for nearly nine thousand pounds in this country back in the day, which um, I believe works out for something like twenty odd thousand pounds now maybe more there we are uh and here we go nick has joined us so uh hello nick good afternoon how is everybody oh uh, we're fine we're all doing well we're doing well how are you because i understand you've just come back from having the covid shot indeed you still got two arms two legs and two heads then <laughs> so far so, so far, far. Do, do you know which one you had i had the uh, ox uh Oxford one, the AstraZeneca. Uh, AstraZeneca. Um, Anic data, as they like to say. Um, more people who've had the, the AstraZeneca report for the, for a day or so afterwards, they feel rough. Um, 
I'll just warn you. Um, oh, jolly good. Look sorry. forward to that. <laughs> <laughs> that uh, you know, you get. It's not guaranteed. Nothing's guaranteed. But a higher percentage of people who have the AstraZeneca seem to complain of you know mild flu-like symptoms for a couple of days afterwards. Yeah, Whereas, it's something um, like one in ten. I think. Yeah. I think the official statistics are one in ten get side effects. So yeah, um, we'll um, see. You I've not yet had any. Nope, I've not no. had one, but I did get an invitation this morning to book, so I've booked mine for next Saturday. There we go. I had mine, and I only felt rough for about two days, but then after that I was fine. So Yeah, do you know which one you had? Uh, I had the Oxford uh, AstraZeneca one as well. Yeah, my wife had the so. Pfizer one, and the only effect she got from that was a sore arm for a few days. You know, oh, felt yeah. like somebody punched her in her upper arm. But um, there we go. It's all good. Any, any, you know, these are all mild effects. It's probably well worth it not to get the plague. Indeed. <laughs> I'm I'm to have a lateral, I'd have a lateral flow test as well because I've you? not had a test before. Right. Interesting. I'm, I'm just worried that uh, the law for me uh, a, a job at the Ravings Craig um, Super Centre uh, because there's no way of getting to it. No. Yeah. Well, for what it's worth, Jim, I know it's probably a bit different you know, up in Scotland, but mm. uh, when I got my um, invitation, it takes you to a website to book, and um, it offered me a choice of about five centres yeah. mm-hmm. to choose from. Um, yeah, same here. Well, I've got I, the flu job in the town centre, so I'm hoping that's the same case. That's quite likely. But you can I, walk up to it. Yeah. I, yeah. I, got, I got the option to pick between about five. When my wife had mm-hmm. hers, the um the local centre had no free slots, so we had to drive not a fabulous distance, but we had to drive out to one of the uh you know another centre for her to have hers. But I was lucky, and there was um slots next Saturday, so I bagged one of those because that's only in the town centre, which is I don't know. Half Seemed a mile very away. well organised anyway. I thought. Yes. Yes. When yeah. my wife went for oh, hers, you know, it was... it's quite clear where you've got to go, and they've got people pointing you in the right direction and telling you what you're going to do next. And yeah, because I'd driven, I had to wait 15 minutes at the end and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, so. I mean, I, I obviously I drove my wife, but um, they said you know you have to stay here for 15 minutes. They wrote a time on the wall, like on a whiteboard, and said you know once they've rejected yeah. you, it's like when this time you know at this time you can leave. If you feel unwell before then, hold your hand up. Someone will come and see to you. You know, it's all very, yeah, very slick. Very, very well organised, I have to say. Good on the NHS. Did you get a lollipop? Indeed. <laughs> no, did you get, no, you did didn't you get, get a lollipop. lollipop. Afterwards. Oh, <laughs> yeah, you've been done <laughs> there. Well you know, unless, you know, mm. unless uh, the Scottish authorities are a bit more generous and do hand out lollipops. <laughs> I, I don't know. You know, no. but uh, no, no lollipops, I'm afraid. <laughs> mm. There we are. So, um, well, we were talking about the iMic Pro, Nick. Yes. Oh, okay. right. Okay. Yeah, we were talking mm. about because the um, if you scroll up in the show, you can find the show notes if you scroll up in uh, wire. Yeah, I've got them. Yeah. Um, yeah, the iMac Pro has been discontinued. This is now apparently official, and um. We were just saying that we're not stunningly surprised because I always felt that it was a stopgap machine. And, uh, you know. Yeah, yeah, I remember you saying that before. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, it does It does seem that way. It, that Everyone wanted the Mac Pro, really, didn't they? Yes, and um, it would, I think it was they, filling And they did gap. it as a sort of, uh, this will appease 80% of the people who want a Mac Pro. Yeah. and you know, Kind of thing. And I was just saying, you know, the... 
the cost of a sort of towards the top end of the iMac Pro range will now cost you more than a lower end, you know, Mac Pro starter. So I think it's been squeezed yeah. out of, you know, squeezed out. It's got no place anymore. And the top at the top well, end iMacs th- kind of compete with it anyway. So well, well, not only that. I mean, the the, the new M ones are so much more powerful that. Um, okay, they won't be as powerful as a top-end iMac Pro, but you know we don't. What's coming next? And <laughs> will stuff start to overtake the power of the iMac Pro fairly quickly? I think so. And, uh, and then, and then it, there'll be no point in buying it because you can get a lot, lot, lot cheaper machine. Exactly. I mean, I think when when the M1s first came out and people were benchmarking them, um, it was sort of a top-of-the-line iMac Pro or a Mac Pro, both of which, of course, actually run uh, the Xeon processors, don't they? Rather than the, you know, the i yeah. series. Were the only ones that, um, you know, could, could top the M, the M series Max. So I'm pretty sure if, an interesting... a, if we have an M1X or an M2, I'm pretty sure that, you know, they're going to overtake yeah. the, the iMac. Well, I saw, I saw a really interesting um, YouTube yesterday. So there's an awful lot of these people who've done YouTubes on the M1 showing how all the benchmarks and all the, which in all honesty, the vast majority of us don't care about. No, I don't care what the benchmarks look like. What does it feel like? And um, what he did was um, he said, my normal workflow is I'll probably have, um, he'll have Ecamm live. Open, um, he'll have Zoom open. Uh, and in the work that he does, he might, he might have, you know, email open and maybe one other thing he said, but he said, just as an example, and he opened up Ecamm and he opened up Zoom and he recorded in Zoom and he recorded in Ecamm. Uh, and then he opened up um, uh, Final Cut Pro and he started rendering a 20-minute um, a uh, video, 4K video that he'd got. Um, uh, and he also then opened up Photoshop. And OK, Photoshop stopped it for a second. He said, but remember that Photoshop isn't optimized for the M1 yet. And no, uh, you had to kill that. Yeah. yeah, and he had to kill that and restart it. But then it opened in three seconds. Uh, and, and he started doing stuff in that as well. He said, he said, now bearing in mind, this is the M1 um uh Mac Mini uh with eight meg eight sorry eight, eight gig, gig yeah memory. and the two and the two fifty six um what yes two fifty six yeah two fifty six um, SSD starter, yeah uh he said and I'm never gonna do this. I'm never gonna have the all these three or four things open all at the same time running all all together and all recording and streaming and and he said not only that he said but while I'm showing you this I'm actually screen sharing to you yeah uh and there was no, and there was no stuttering right he no, said well, so what more do people want <laughs> what more do you want <laughs> the, the real the real killer's not running all that stuff the real killer is running skype and chrome in the background that will kill it <laughs> <laughs> yeah. oh yeah good point good point very good yes so um there we go so if you if you for some reason have a burning desire to get an iMac Pro uh best buy one now before they're gone there we are um so so that was that um and of course there's a lot of talk all over the web about what's coming next um most of which, despite being from allegedly top quality leakers, are the sort of things that I could predict. You know, smaller bezels, <laughs> yes. less chin, probably flat backed to look, you know, to follow the new design aesthetic. Um, I can't remember who it was. It might have been John Prosser is saying that they might come in five colours, uh, sort of pastel colours. Not quite, not so sure about that, but... Um, there was one. There was an, another YouTube I watched during the week. There's another guy I follow. I can't remember his name now. Um 
but he, he he often does lots of stuff re restoring old Macs and things like that, and getting them working again. Um, and he what he decided to do was to take a, a 17, 2017 iMac where the innards had failed. Something had gone wrong with it. Uh, the CPU had blown up, and he basically ripped the interior out of this iMac, and then and then he literally slapped the. Well, first of all, he just he, le he left the screen and he just plugged his M1 Mac Mini into the screen. He said, you know, technically I could put all this back together. It would work. And um, he said, but obviously there's limitations with ports and things like that. But then he actually took the processor card out of the Mac Mini and actually sort of taped it inside his iMac case. Um, and, it, and so literally he had an... <laughs> He had an M1 iMac that he'd just done himself, which I thought yeah. was really clever. Yeah, here we go. So, uh, you know, room, still lots of rumours flying around, of course, about, you know, will there be a March event? And if so, what will they announce? Um, more stuff. More stuff. Undoubtedly more stuff. There will be more stuff. Indeed, there will. Um, so, shall we move on? Um, 9 to 5 Mac had an article which I found quite interesting. Uh, the side effect of Apple's increasing garden walls is better hiding places for elite hackers. Um, mm. it, it's one of those kind of interesting dilemmas. The, the security researchers who they're, you know, talking to are basically saying that um, for most people, you know, these ever-increasing security protections are, you know, a good thing um, and make it harder and harder for people to get you know to get into your devices the downside is those few um you know nefarious actors who are able to do so um can effectively hide themselves behind the security walls um so that it's very very difficult to detect that they have penetrated a machine um i don't know really what to say about that i mean it's i'm almost of the of the opinion well if you are that high priority a target um I'm not even sure that you should be using any commercially available um, kind of kit. What do you think, Chad? Yeah, yeah, I think that, um, I think it's inevitable, really. I mean, we've all we always talk about the fact that the cleverer the hackers get, the more the cleverer Apple gets, you know, protecting its operating system, and uh, and then the cleverer the hackers get, and so I suppose the more complex they make it then inevitably you're going there's just going to be more stuff you can get hiding that 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 sort of makes sense to me without going into any kind of depth in it uh, just simply because you're making it more complicated i think i think on the on the whole i think it's a good thing i understand what these security researchers are saying that you know it does mean that those few but, but i think what it means is you're going to the people who are capable of doing it are getting squeezed down and down to the level yeah. of you know we're talking about the level of governments and the nsa and you know gchq who can get into devices in ways that only they know how and um sure but i think if you're that higher level of target you know i'm sure dougie and um you know like nick from CSI would say, you know, I if you're at that level of a risk, you probably should not be using any commercially available product. You should be <laughs> yeah, using it. Just, a, just you, don't get on the internet. You should be using something <laughs> specifically hardened, you know, um, these yeah. kind of ultra-secure phones that allegedly people like James Bond are supposed to use, you know. Yeah. I think it's a little bit... Sorry, go on, Jim. I was going to say, I think if you look at it this way, there's nothing secure. No. Uh, the only secure phone is no phone. Yes. Um, yeah. 
But for the Audi Martin, the street, I don't think it really affects them too no, much. No, it doesn't. Uh, it's, it's, you know, like businesses and security and all that kind of thing, uh, services and that kind of thing. They have to worry. But um, is it, have they actually seen it's actually been done or is it just something that's theoretical? Um, well, it, it, I think what they has it been done? Yes, because, you know, we've had things like, you know, the now notorious, you know, Al Jazeera um, journalist devices and so on that were hacked. Um, but again, I, I understand what they're saying, but I think the, the number of people that this actually applies to is, you know, an ever diminishing number because mm. the, the harder Apple make it, then the fewer people are actually able to get inside. The fact that they um they then have more ways to hide themselves against you know casual discovery is inevitable. I just I mean if you if you take the uh, analogy a little bit further, it's a little bit like someone breaking in uh, you know into beyond the garden wall. Um, having to hide and finding a, a garden store that looks really good for hiding in and they jump in and they lock the garden store <laughs> so they're hidden but they can't actually do anything <laughs> yeah, yeah. yes another, another thing is um you, you get you, you've been hearing the stories about uh law enforcement want to have a back door into the iphone um and apple saying no you can't have it um well, there, there, there is always some kind of backdoor into it if this is what they can do. Yeah. No. Um, yeah, as you said at the beginning, Jim, it's an ongoing war, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, it, it's not telling us anything we don't know, really. Mm-hmm. No. I, you know, I just found it an interesting piece to, you know, it's worth, it's worth, a, it's worth, a, it's worth a read if you're interested in that sort of thing. Um, there we go. Um, um, and... The upcoming iOS iOS update reveals how Apple will protect you against new iPhone features being used for stalking. Um, this was on the Independent. Sorry, Alistair, this one is only available in Apple News. So everybody who can't get Apple News can't read this. Um, it's not on the Independent website. It's an Apple News, uh, you know, exclusive. Um, but I can tell you what it says, and that is basically um, in the latest betas, um, when you go to Find My, there's an extra tab which says Items, which at the moment simply says um, Items, which, you know, third-party um, items which are compatible with Find My will appear here. Um, but when you go into the Find My settings, there is a new switch called Device Security, which um, basically, if you try and turn that off, it says... Uh, people with unknown devices may be able to find your location. Um, what it's doing, according to this article, is the Find My um, API will check if it can detect, uh, you know, an AirTag type uh, compatible tracker, which it doesn't know about, but which is following you around. So, in other words, if somebody puts, uh, you know, an AirTag uh, in your in your bag without your knowledge, oh, right. Right, and uh, find my detects this, it will flash up a warning saying an unknown tracker appears to be following you around. Um, that was one of the concerns, wasn't it? That they it was. expressed when they were talking about tags in the first place. Yes, assuming you have an iPhone, though. Uh, yes, but I mean, it, it's on the iPhone, you know. So, it if will... somebody could put a tag in your bag and you're a, an Android phone user, you won't get that message. <laughs> well, that yeah, possibly. 
possibly. But although I, you know, I'm no, I'm not a fan of Google, but they do seem of late to have, you know, started stepping up their game a bit and following, you know, more Apple-like, um, you know, processes. What do you think, Steve? You got anything to say about that? Uh, yeah, it is. It's interesting. Like, you, like they say, um, if you're an Android user, you're out of luck there. But um, I've used the the Find My Network uh, a couple of times. So anything that they can do to try and make it a bit more simple for you to know, and definitely because undoubtedly there are people could be out there that's going to try tracking maybe their spouses or something like that. So if there's anything Apple can do, then yeah, that's great. Yeah phone to keep a track on those if it then notices another tracker which is not registered with the phone it will alert you which is which yeah, is good there's one or two things apple have done of late aren't isn't it that it's certainly in their beta releases that you think oh that's really clever yeah. <laughs> why have we not thought of that before yep so well done well done apple there we go um this is a very long article um from patently apple who of course report on all apple patents um uh, apparently apple has finally revealed that one of their foldable display patents is now focused on being a foldable laptop or possibly i guess a foldable you know large ipad um previously Previously, apparently, this this is not a new patent. It's about five or six years old, uh, but they get updated. You know, patents get updated. Um, apparently, Apple have updated the patent to specifically uh, refer to it as an laptop or laptop-like device, whereas previously it simply described it as, um, you know, patent for foldable displays for devices. Um, there we are. Well... Uh, such as any device, basically, very generically, very generically a device. Um, now they have kind of made reference to laptop um, specifically. Um, you see, I, I can so, I can sort of see laptop or or even iPad um, would be nice foldable because it, it you know then it's not it's like my twelve point nine inch. I mean, it's great. It's what it does, but it would be really nice to be able to fold it down to half side, stick it in the bag. Yes. <laughs> I've, you know, I've always said that I thought that, you know, the iPad would be a, a better device to be able to fold in half than your phone. Yeah, I think so too. Opinion. Um, yeah. yeah, it's going to be a bit like, I think, kind of like the Microsoft Surface. Um, I think it's the, is it the Duo, the Neo, or whatever it's called. Yeah. I think it's probably going to go with them, that sort of route, and that'd be really ha- handy then. That is, mm. that is what, I mean, you know, Apple don't necessarily make use of any of their, you know, anything that they patent. They just patent stuff because, because that's what big tech people do. Um, what I did find interesting about this patent, um, if you bother to, you know, it is quite a long thing because patents usually are. But it, it um, it's quite interesting in that rather than using, a, you know, a plastic foldable screen and talking about the hinges and whatnot, um, this is specifically talking about having effectively two glass screens um, joined by a flexible strip across the hinge so that the only part of the... Um, the only part of the display, which is not a you know rigid glass as you would expect now, is the piece across the hinge, um, which is interesting. Oh right, yeah, the yeah. sort of a flexible strip of, of, across where the joint is, um, and it specifically refers to the the bendable part in itself, possibly being made of glass, which is even more interesting. Interesting. Um, there, there is actually a um, computer on the market just now. It does actually do that. Um, I don't mean the sliding part of the glass, um, but there is a there is a, um, a kind of tablet style computer. Um, is it IBM? It does it. 
I'm not sure, but yeah, I I think I've um, seen I think I've seen it references. Falls to up, it. Yeah, but it has a has a separate keyboard you can put into the um one half of the screen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So there we go. That's it. I I found that was interesting. Um mm. it's not a new thing, but they've, you know, expanded upon it apparently. I think the real problem is not the not the bending of the screen, it's actually stopping things getting in behind it, which has been one yeah. of the biggest problem so it'd be interesting to see if apple would solve that issue yes um it's i wonder whether it's another one of these things where all the users like the idea but apple really hate the idea and they're never going to do it <laughs> well yeah but i guess you know as i say they've obviously spent a lot of time on this because this is you know sort of a six-year-old patent that they keep updating um mm -hmm. and yeah if you're interested in that sort of thing it, it's worth you know it's worth looking at um I just find it fascinating. I really do. Mm. You know, people are obsessed with it. Whether it's really a great idea or not is another matter. Um, yeah. You know, is it, it possibly it just... waiting for the technology to actually get good? Uh, that's why they haven't jump, jumped in like every other company has. Um, yeah. Waiting for it to get to the point where it is durable. Yeah. And you know, or actually, yeah, because one of the one of the one of the things about the iPhone, original iPhone, wasn't it, is that they couldn't have launched it before they did because it was all new touch technology. Mm. So they had to wait for the technology to become sufficiently mature to be able to actually make it work. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, actually, the the kind of um, touch technology that's you know was in the iPhone, the multi-touch capacitive thing, you know, not resistive, clicking it with a with yes. a stylus type thing. It is not new. I think it was originally developed in about the late sixties. But yeah, it's it was it being sufficiently good, yes, wasn't it? <laughs> being being a sufficiently good and you know brought down to a level where you could do it and put it in a phone and yes, and mass not, produce it. And mass produce it reliably, and it not make the phone cost you know five thousand quid. So um, it's a little bit like it's a little bit like all the um, uh, the investigations into battery technology. You know, there's an awful lot of discoveries that people make, but many of them don't get out of the lab because as soon as you start trying to scale them up, yeah, they become you, impractical or they, too expensive. They or... become you know overly expensive or yeah, exactly. Oh, this we found this fabulous technology for making a battery. Unfortunately, yeah, by the time we've well, tried to turn still... it into a product, you know, it's going to cost you a million yeah, quid. And, and I was listening this morning to um, uh, one of the EV podcasts I listened to, and they were talking about Rivian now talking about solid state batteries again. And I, yes. I mean, we've been talking about solid state batteries for what ten years? Yep, probably, yeah, probably, uh, and, and they're still not here yet. <laughs> but. So, but they're still working on it, which means, you know. But they're still working on it. Yeah, obviously, they really think that it will work eventually. If you can, they'll be able and to get it. And, of course, you know, we all, we've all said on this show, haven't we, plenty of times, he who, you know, controls the next great battery technology rules the world. Oh, yes, very much so. You know, um, lithium ion is, is brilliant and better than nickel cadmium. But, you know, he who comes up with the next great leap forward in battery technology is going to basically control the whole world there we are um sorry that was a good uh, that was a good uh, what's the word a tangent? good offshoot from what we were actually talking about <laughs> yeah well there you go tangent. yes yeah never mind um there's nothing wrong with that whatsoever um this is a little slightly strange one scott forstall asked pandora develop to develop its app using jailbroken iphones before there was an app store um 
This is on 9 to 5 Mac. This doesn't actually surprise me, to be honest. Um, because obviously we all know when the when the iPhone first shipped, there was no there was no App Store. Um, but I'm sure people within Apple knew it was coming, and I'm sure you know quite a lot of big developers, at least, might have been you know had a heads up. Um, and the only way you'd be able to do that would be to have a jailbroken phone. Um, back then, you know, yeah, it depends depends on how you define jailbroken, doesn't it? Really. So yes. they give they gave them a special access to. <laughs> I'm assuming that, that yes, I don't think they literally yeah. went out and got a dodgy hack. I'm sure what that means is a bit, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it means that, um, you know, Scott Forstall was saying, look, here, this thing is coming. Have this specially modified iPhone with the, you know, with the locks removed so that you can start developing apps. Um, I've got I've got images now of Scott Forstall with a, with a Mac on, you know, saying, yeah, here, here gov. Here, gov. Do you want to buy it? Do you want to yeah. buy a jailbroken iPhone? Like the old dodgy postcard seller, yeah. Yes. <laughs> on a dodgy iPhone. Yes, very much so. <laughs> we haven't talked about this, but of course, um, it, it's been all over the web, isn't it? That apparently um, Apple want to depose or subpoena Scott Forstall for um, one of their one of their court case type things, and apparently are unable to track him down. Oh yes, I heard that. Yeah, because weird, apparently all he's got is a sort of a all they've got is a blog. A blog address and a Twitter handle or something. Yeah. Like, we don't know where he lives. <laughs> <laughs> well, because they, they want him. They want to get hold of him, but he doesn't want them to get hold of him, I guess. Mind you, they didn't exactly part on the best of terms, did they? So, you know. Uh, no. <laughs> no, exactly. Although yeah, here's your iPhone and you can keep it. <laughs> <laughs> then again, I mean, you know, it's not like he d- disappeared, did he? He went off and did, didn't he do an opera and become a you know show producer and things yeah oh but right i, I don't it remember the world, so. yeah it, it did a, he produced an opera i think after he left apple um as well as other things there we go that's um that's just a little story i just you know piqued my interest slightly um mm. this one um this one's sort of sort of apple but it's also sort of everybody else um the reason I've put it in Apple is because it says here, uh, author takes to Twitter after breaking iCloud with true last name, um, which is on iMore. Um, and apparently, uh, because this person's surname is true, um, they were effectively locked out of their iCloud because um, entering true in the last name field uh, causes a problem or causes a problem. <laughs> because um, it says... False. It's not being, yeah, probably not being, uh, you know, read as a string, but as a as a code. And um, as we know, whoops, whoops, yeah, and this has caused an issue, um, which led me down a little bit of a rat hole. Um, and if you're interested in that, that's worth a read. It's not particularly long, but that led me down another rat hole, um, which is uh, I found a thing on BBC, which is these unlucky people have names which break computers. Um, one of the most famous being um, a woman whose name is Jennifer Null, which uh, lots of forms on the internet do not like. You cannot enter Null as a value in uh, many fields. And uh, so she says, you know, I ha- I feel like I'm trapped and I have to do everything the old fashioned way. I have to make my appointments by phone and so on, because when I enter my name, it usually says you cannot enter that as a value. So um... one of my, uh, one of my favorite stories around that is when the, the early days of the internet, when they were uh, 
people were setting up their accounts and uh, so it was coded so that you couldn't put rude names in your address field. Yes. Uh, so it, it rejected Scunthorpe. Yes, yes, that's a very famous story, isn't it? Um, which, uh, which I, I think is a lovely story. Um, and it's one of those unexpected consequences. Um, yes, you've not quite thought it all through. And um, they, I mean, this leads on on the BBC article. It says, um, you know, every couple of years, computer systems tend to be upgraded or changed, and they're tested against a variety of data. Names which are well, well represented in society, explains the programmer. They don't necessarily test for edge cases. Um, yeah. And as he says, um, as it says one of here. The things that, one of the things that really frustrates me about um, people building databases quite often is that they'll test them with, you know, or you're buying a database. Uh, and and someone said, you know, you need to test it with some data. So they give you test data or you use your own test data. But it's always, you know, 20 gig of test data. And when it's under load, it's going to be, you know, 200 terabytes of data. <laughs> so you never really know what's going to happen when that 200 terabytes goes in. And um, anyway, sp spinning off from that, um, there was, uh, you know, I as I say, I went down a bit of a rabbit hole um, and it got into... Um, you know, various reasons. You get, you know, you get things like, uh, you know, con consider the experience of Janice, and I'm not even going to attempt to pronounce her name because it's 36 characters long and it's uh, native uh, Hawaiian. So I'm not going oh, to attempt wow. it. Right. Um, and as it says here, uh, a Hawaiian woman who complained that state ID cards should allow citizens to display surnames even as long as hers, which is 36 characters in total. In the end, the government computer systems were updated to have more flexibility in this area. Um, and that's what they're talking about, edge cases. See, they're saying here, you know, um, a lot of uh, um, certainly Western kind of databases don't cope if your, you know, if your uh, surname is like one or two letters, which uh, yeah. might not seem, you know, might seem a bit weird to us in the West, but there are plenty of people, you know, um, who speak African languages where, um, you know, their their surname may only be one or two characters long. Um, yeah, uh, I know someone who's uh, Korean and their surname is NG. Yes, that's actually quite common. Um, yes. That is actually a common name. Um, as the guy says in this article, um, cultural bias can throw you out as well. As he says, you know, um, many Japanese names only have, you know, uh, have less than four characters. Um, as he says, my name is Mackenzie, and um, I found I find the issue that you know in Japan many of the forms don't have enough characters to take my name, which is uh, <laughs> you know the sort of thing that can happen. Um, which really means expand your you know be careful to try and think outside the box whilst designing these things. Um, I was most annoyed the other day actually talking about that, where I filled in a form for my local council and it said put your you know put in your email address. And I put in my email address, and it was uh, they hadn't allowed enough characters. Oh yes, I've had that before because when, when I used my blue yonder address, that's actually quite long. <laughs> yes, so, I, well, uh, you know, I, I used a, yeah. a fairly one of my. You know, I've got half a dozen email addresses. Fine, you know, I could use another one, but it was the one I wished to use. Um, it rejected it and said 
you know, you must make your email address fit in the box. And I thought, what if that was the only email address I'd got? That would be. It really offends me as well when you have to fill in. For, I mean, we don't have to do this very often these days because it's all online. But when you do have to fill in a form <laughs> and they give you those little like sort of boxes to put the letters in. <laughs> yes. I hate having to write outside the, oh, outside the boxes. In those horrible <laughs> things, yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, yeah. It could, be, it, could be it could be from that Turning Wheels with a very, very long name. Oh, yeah. the yeah, Lanfair, whatever it is, yes. <laughs> yeah, Lanfair, blah, 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 go, go, go. <laughs> <laughs> I won't even yeah, attempt. I wouldn't have the space to write that in any form. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that's the, the longest one, but I believe there are some in Scotland as well, Jim. You know, we... You get uh, where I work in a town called Borrowstowness. It's now called Bones, B-O-N-E-S-S. Oh, right. Because the original name is too long, Borrowstowness. Yep. But it now causes confusion because there's a Bones in uh, Scotland, there's a Bones in uh, Cumbria. Ah, but they're spelt with W's, aren't they? Uh, Well, they sound the same, I suppose. They sound the same. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So, uh, yeah, Steve. Got any comments on that? <laughs> uh, no, not really. I, I used to hate again, like you say, but the box is trying to write that I could never fit my email addresses in there. They were an absolute nightmare. But, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, but, but um, yeah, this was online. I was filling in this thing online, and I tried to paste my email address in, and it was it just kept like, no, that's too long. Like, well, how can it be too long? You stupid morons! Code your code your bloody web forms better, idiot. And that's effectively what you know what we've got here. People whose names either you know break it for one reason or another. I mean, null and true, I can understand particularly, but they're you know they're talking about all sorts of other edge cases, which are quite amusing. There we go. Um, so um, missing square brackets, I think somewhere. Probably. If I remember my little bits of coding. <laughs> yeah, should be broken square out. brackets that enclose. Yeah, yeah. yeah if enclose if you read, stuff you're not expecting. Yeah, if you read the article, they're saying you know it's, it's almost certainly being interpreted as a as a boolean uh, result and not a yes. Uh, and yeah. not a string, which it should be, but definitely should have been, you know, should be a string. So it doesn't matter what you put in there, really. Um, there we are. Um, NASA's Mars Perseverance rover is powered by an iMac G3 processor. Um, and I, I, we've probably seen this all over the web. Um, oh, no, I haven't seen this. Have you not seen wow. this? Um, no. It, it's not strictly true, uh, right, to be honest. They uh, haven't just ripped <laughs> a chip out of an old Bondi Blue iMac and pasted it onto a board and stuck it on the uh, on the Mars rover. Um, of course, you get a lot of um, a lot of things are reported, like, you know, why uh, NASA with their cutting-edge Mars rover using a 20-year-old processor? Um I've heard people talking about this on a variety of podcasts. Um, and, and, of course, the real reason is if your mission relies on this chip, you need something um, super reliable. Um, and yeah. it has to be, you know, it's actually radiation hardened and all sorts of other um, things, which as somebody on a, on a podcast I was listening to uh, said, you know, doesn't just mean putting it in a lead box. It means um, architecting the chip so that even if it gets cosmic radiation blowing holes through some of the circuitry, it will continue to work. So um, That's cool, isn't it? It's the kind of thing that you don't really think about when you hear that something's landed on another planet. No. But but it's the kind of thing that they have to consider. It says in here, uh, in this in the article, there's a pretty big difference between the IMAC G3 CPU and the one inside the rover. This PowerPC 750 chip can withstand 200,000 to 1 million rads 
of yeah. radiation, I presume that is, and temperatures between minus 55 and 125 degrees Celsius. Yeah. That's uh, it's robust. Pretty, yes. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is the point. When, you know, even when they started building that rover, that G3 chip was already 10 years old. Um, yeah. But that's because, as you know, the show I was listening to, the, the guy was explaining, you know, if you're going to do this, you need to take something that is in, incredibly well tried, trusted, um, understood to the utmost level. And um, and then you start taking that and doing what you need to do to it, you know, to harden it and make it. And sometimes the, um, and sometimes the, the act of making something more powerful actually makes it more delicate. Yes. Yeah. So, so you... <laughs> you might have a very very powerful machine but it might only work in a very strict temperature um bands for instance yeah um uh, so so for instance some of the probably some of the chips inside some of these supercomputers that take up warehouses and kinds of thing they're, they're probably their environments are probably really heavily controlled oh, yes, because they can't so, afford they? for them to be you know you're, prob- yeah. you're probably afraid it's much more reliable than modern day marks uh, <laughs> <laughs> could be could be <laughs> uh, i mean it's somebody else the genius to get sent up to fix it though yeah <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Yeah, it's, don't, don't worry. They've got a genius bar on Mars. Haven't they? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's a Mars bar. Oh, groan! Oh, 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 I should have. I should have, I should have a. <laughs> I think I might have a sad trombone. I might have a sad trombone somewhere. <laughs> oh dear. Um, the other thing, of course, as you know, in this discussion was pointed out, you don't need super high performance chips to do this. You know, the, the rover is not, you're not steering a rover that's going 120 miles an hour across the, <laughs> you know, across the Martian surface. It crawls along. And also, you know, there's a 45 minute delay in anything you send there. So um, actually, it doesn't matter if the processor is slow. It's still a bazillion times faster than is actually necessary for what it's doing. Yeah. So... And the sheer fact that it works that far away remotely is just bonkers yeah. in my <laughs> in bonkers. my head. Um, and related to that, but not um, thing. I'm sure we all saw on Twitter not long after the uh, the rover um, had landed an alleged video of uh, the Martian surface from from the Perseverance with sound which was uh, later debunked as actually being fake. Um, NASA have now actually released um, a recording from Mars from the Perseverance uh, rover where you can listen to the Martian wind. There you go. Go look it up. It's on It's on NASA's it site. It, it shouldn't have had beans for its tea. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. We're going to... I think I might have to change the name of this show to Bad Jokes, you know. Dear, oh dear. <laughs> uh, right, well, that's most of the Apple News chaps, so I think what we'll do is we'll take our five-minute break while we go over to John in the hardware store, who has something new to talk about, um, and then we'll come back and have a look at a couple more stories. Okay? Excellent. Okay. About 10 years ago, I started reviewing headphones from a small independent company called Think Sound. T-H-I-N-K-S-O-U-N-D. Think Sound, one word, dot com. And I've reviewed all their headphones, mostly earbuds, in-ear headphones, 
over the years, and they've all been very, very good. They have a brand new product called the IN20, the N20, IN20. Price is $150 in the U.S. It says coming soon on their website, so watch thinksound.com and you'll be able to order these very soon. The big question is why would anybody want to spend $150 now, today, for some conventional in-ear wired earbuds or in-ear headphones? The answer is they are excellent. They're very well manufactured, they feel great, and the sound stage, the spatial, immersive clarity, the richness of the sound from the Think Sound IN20 is outstanding. And as long as you don't drop them or bake them into a pizza or let the cat and dog play with them, you'll have them forever. So keep them in a safe place. When you get your IN20 from Think Sound, the first thing you want to do is connect them using a direct conventional audio port to a playback device that has one, such as an older iPhone or iPad, or get a $9 adapter from Apple for either your newer or older USB-C or lightning tip. They work fine with either one. And then just start playing and put the headphones and the playback device in your closet or your drawer for a day or two. Just let the speaker drivers, the little small speakers, inside the headphones ripen and mature and condition because from out of the box till a couple of days of playback the sound really gets better i was pleasantly shocked at how good the sound gets after all that ripening and what you will experience is immersive sound like i said comfortable feeling a good rugged build very very compact attractive and you will love listening to your music or whatever you listen to with the Think Sound IN20, $150 US. The designer and owner of the company is Aaron Fournier, and he says it's the latest headphone combining the best of everything in a small package with big sound, the most versatile headphone yet with a smooth sound signature, the upgraded acoustics so you can listen for hours on end. Right about now, you're going to be saying, oh, forget it. Let's just go Bluetooth. Let's go wireless. Forget the earbuds that go in your ear with a cable. And I say, wait a minute. We're lining up Aaron Fournier to be in an interview here on Essential Apple. So let's just say this is the beginning of our coverage of their new product. Congratulations. You've done a good job, Aaron at Think Sound. And we'll be hearing from you and more from your company very soon here at Nemo's Hardware Store. Back next week. Thank you, John. And links, as ever, will be in the show notes. So we shall move on a bit. Uh, that's pretty much all of the Apple stories done. Um, this is one I stumbled across, which I found fascinating um, and is one of these kind of unintended consequences or, uh, you know, happy, happy circumstances. Um, the uh, Some researchers at, um, I believe, the Queensland University of Technology, yes, um, their Centre for Material Science and uh, also uh, in association with the Shanghai's Fudan University and the J Japanese National Institute for Material Science, were examining the properties of silver at an atomic scale. Um, and apparently they were doing this by putting nanoparticles of silver onto the outside of tiny nanorods with channels inside them. 
Um, okay. Well, that must have very steady hands. That's all I can that's, say. That's all I can say. Yes, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> quite true. Um, and I'm like, quite why they would do that. I have no idea. But then I'm not an atomic scale scientist. So there you go. Um, these experiments are usually performed in a vacuum or, as they say later, um, or under an inert atmosphere. Um, for some reason, which they don't disclose, they decided to try a test in ordinary atmosphere. Uh, when we do this in a vacuum or some inert atmosphere, as people usually do, nothing happens. But we decided to try it in air. The atoms from silver particles diffused very fast and diffused inside the channels. Um, he explains the expected result for such an experiment would be that the silver would react with oxygen in the air to film silver oxide, uh, which is exactly quite right. I would, you know, <laughs> at an atomic level, if you expose raw silver to the atmosphere, you would expect it to immediately combine with oxygen and turn into black silver oxide. Anyway, instead, the atoms formed inside the channels in a self-organisational process like water drops going through a sieve, apparently. The result was 200 wires, each as thin as an atom, forming inside the channels. Um, this was not intentional, and we did not actually intend to make wires, he said. Um, <laughs> That's amazing, isn't it? I can imagine people... <laughs> I can imagine them looking at it and saying, what? That wasn't supposed... <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? That's one of those... What the hell? That's not supposed to happen. Oh, actually, we've done something really great. Um, That's amazing. Yeah. Um, apparently, for 20 years, researchers have been trying to develop atomic-scale wires which are stable when outside a vacuum. Um, apparently, further testing shows these nanowires can be used as thermal switches. Uh, at some temperatures, the material becomes insulator. This is not common for silver. No, it's not. Um, <laughs> turning metals into insulators is usually not common at all. Um, it is called metal insulator transition. Um, this is an interesting transition in physics. Yeah, I bet it is. Um, this means the silver wire could be used as a thermal switch. Depending on the temperature, you can change the properties of the material by changing the temperature. Okay. Apparently, the wire is the length of approximately one-fifth of the width of a human hair. But Goldberg says this is too long and will continue to work on reducing the size. Um, it's pretty small, but for me, it is quite long. In an electron microscope, it is very big. There you go. So don't you of... just love don't you just love nature and the way that it throws <laughs> throws a wobbly in what you're trying to do? <laughs> Fantastic. That's amazing. Yeah, absolutely amazing. That's not supposed to do that. Well, it did. <laughs> yeah, another twenty years of research now to figure out why it did it. Yeah. Yes. As yeah, for making yeah. as for making it shorter, just make your nanotubes shorter, mate. Because if it's <laughs> Well, nano wires are a, a highly desirable um, object, Jim, because if you can make a wire which is only one atom wide, mm. which is as thin as you can possibly make it effectively, um, it has the sort of the least resistance to electricity flowing down it. You push electricity in one end, and it basically the the electrons have n less room to jiggle as they go down the pipe, as it were. That's not actually how it works, but that's how my physics teacher explained it to me when I was a wee lad. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and the problem, because resistance in wire is basically caused by the electric current, which is atoms moving through the wire, jiggling. Yeah. And um, so the more they, they jiggle, the more heat they generate. 
So if you're what, trying to make... What's the end use of it? What's the end use of it? Um, yeah, that's, that's what I'm interested in. What were they going? To, what are they going to use them for? Well, I don't know because I don't think no. they were they, they weren't expecting to make nanowires at all. No, I, I, no, I realise that what I'm saying is I'm interested to find out what they'll use it for. In the future. Well, I think I think the idea is if you would could do that, then you can um you know you can wire together micro electronic components at a yeah which don't incredibly efficient circuits i mean when you think about for instance um uh, uh bionics yeah where you're actually building artificial arms and things mm. uh you 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 want your energy to be transferred as efficiently as possible from one place to another mm-hmm. um so that you only have to put one power source in it to actually make the arm work so i mean it's all those kind of things where where energy efficiency is utmost i mean i will probably have an impact I am not, you know, in any way, shape or form, a scientist or, or a doctor, but I could imagine if you could make um, nanowires of the correct type, um, you might be able to use it to repair nerve damage in the human body by mm, right. spanning, you know, damaged nerves. And if it was only, mm-hmm. you know, nerve fibres are tiny, really. Um, yeah, that's, yeah, that's another possibility. That's yeah. sort of, That sort of thing. Uh, I, I was fascinated by this just as much as anything. Yeah, like the whole yeah. kind of, um, we were mm-hmm. doing something and then we thought we'd try this and we all went, that's not supposed to do that. <laughs> yeah. And now we've created something that we could, you know, so then it's like, wow, right, okay, now we'll go and figure out what to do with it, I guess. Um, and probably, as I say, probably spend 20 years trying to figure out how it, why it did what it did. Um, you got any take on that, Steve? Uh, no, like you say, it's going to be interesting if they can put it into um, artificial limbs. And obviously, the heat given off there would be quite, hopefully quite reduced, wouldn't it? So that'd be definitely be useful in that way. Yeah, I would have thought anything, anything where we're talking about stuff that needs to be very small, um, and you need to build circuits within it. Then yeah, there you go. And, you know, I mean, we, you know, we're already talking we're about obviously only speculating, but yeah, because we're not material scientists. But I mean, for example. You know, processor node technologies down to what five nanometer, and then they want to get down to three nanometer, and that's all. The reason that that's considered, you know, important is for exactly the same reason, Jim. You know, the smaller you can make the the circuits, the less heat you generate, and the less power you need to put into it to push the electrons around the circuits. Yeah, and the reason the reason the M1 is so powerful and so surprising is simply because everything's very close together. And mm. very, very tiny. Yeah, you know? it's all it's all very clever. I mean, you look at look at graphene. Um, yeah, stuff like that. Yeah. It's just, it's quite amazing. Uh, quite amazing stuff. And uh, I, I think it's still just you know part of this is it's still amazing that you know with all the knowledge and all the research and all the skill that mm-hmm. people like this researcher have got that nature can still surprise them by doing something they don't expect, and then it's like mm-hmm. wow, what, you know. <laughs> Wow, how did that just happen? And all I can say is, if you want shorter wires, you better short saw your nano tubes in half, and then um, you'll you'll get you shorter nano wires. There, that's it. So it works, isn't it? Get a little I, tiny hacksaw and cut the pipe. That's down. right, a nano hacksaw. <laughs> oh, probably do that with an electron beam microscope, wouldn't they? Probably, probably. There we go. Um, but that's also um. Talking about that sort of thing, the, the sort, the other sort of purpose you would put those kind of things to is: um, Does anybody remember the? Uh, I think it was IBM who made 
like an atomic scale electric motor and built, oh, yeah, effectively built a little remember something built a little tiny car type thing yeah. like literally yeah. out of a few atoms and then you know under the electron microscope managed to make it drive a, you know drive a short distance was, um you know if you've got if you've got nano wires then that sort of thing is right that's how you would send power to it because mm-hmm. you're looking at something that's only made out of a you know a dozen atoms or something there you go that's um way above my pay grade but i found it you know very fascinating um indeed um i miss i miss a program we used to you know, we all know we're old enough to remember the program uh, uh it was on bbc tomorrow's um, world tomorrow's world i miss i miss that kind of tv show yes. giving you yeah i'd love yeah. to see that back again and that would be one of the things that would be yeah 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 you can That's... still find that there's quite a lot of old tomorrow's world on youtube so mm-hmm. which is uh, quite fun to watch you will also find it of course on the bbc archive mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Where they um was it a year or so ago they they did a they built like a um an archive and you can go there and watch pretty much any anything that the BBC have, have ever put out that they still have a, a record of obviously not stuff from the days when stuff was live and they didn't record it but um they um they have a huge archive so you can go there and watch for example you know the mm-hmm. computer program or yeah all the old tomorrow's worlds and things like that um somebody had a link. Um, the other day to an old Tomorrow's World where uh, Raymond Baxter was talking to people about their mini computer, which uh, was quite fascinating. And they <laughs> wasn't um, very mini. <laughs> no, it wasn't very mini. No, it was the size of a desk. Um, and and then they used it. They were saying we can use this to do logic problems. And uh, they had a train set, and they they said, Oh, right, I saw that. Yeah. Yes, we've got X number of trucks labelled one to eight. Um, and like if Raymond, uh, you know, would kindly pick out four truck numbers at, at random, the computer will figure out how to shunt them all around and, and sort them into the correct order and then attach them to a, attach them, you know, to a loco, which was, it all, it all looked a bit twee now, you know, but it was at the time an amazing piece of, um, technology. Yeah. You know, it's very easy to look back at that and go, why are we, you know, so the computer can figure out how to sort the trucks, you know, wow. Like, yes, but that was <laughs> the first time somebody had done it. <laughs> so... I think Forest World were also the first program to actually make a um, mobile phone call. Yeah. Yeah, I've so... seen that episode. It was good. Yeah. Of course, for those who were too young, they were also notoriously famous for doing live demos, which spectacularly failed. <laughs> Despite, yes, and then they would always say it worked perfectly well in rehearsal. Um, <laughs> <laughs> oh dear! And as somebody said of the um, of the thing about the computer and the train set was, you know, for those of us of a certain age, just hearing Raymond Baxter's voice will give you goosebumps. Um, yeah, true. Also true. There we are. Um, so while we were talking about heat, heat and technology, let's go to this one. Um, NFTs are hot, and so is their effect on the Earth's climate. This is on Wired. Um, NFTs being this new non-fungible tokens, which is basically buying virtual things via blockchaining them. Um, and this is really quite. Um, this is really quite staggering, and um, I think the guy who discovered it was pretty put out. Um, two years ago, uh, an artist known as Joni Le Mercier, a French artist known for uh, 
perception-bending light sculptures took on a new role as a climate activist. He attended protests against coal mining, projected lasers onto excavators and government officers with dramatic effect, and began a campaign demanding Autodesk stop selling design software to fossil fuel operations. Uh, he took a look at his own energy use, which included a hefty heating bill for the studio, electricity for his high-end computers, um, dozens of flights each year to exhibitions, and tracked it all down to the last watt, and vowed to reduce his energy use by 10% per annum, a goal he successfully met. Then, a few months ago, in the course of a few minutes, his progress was erased. Um, and this is where it gets scary. Uh, the culprit was Le Mercier's first blockchain drop. The event involved the sale of six so-called non-fungible tokens, which took the form of short videos inspired by the concept of platonic solids, which, for those of you who don't know, are the shapes such as uh, the three-sided pyramid, the cube... Um, the uh, dodecahedron, shapes like that. Um, anyway, uh, in the clips, dark metallic polyhedrons rotate on a loop and glisten, a reference to Le Mercier's installations in the real world. These works were placed for auction on a website called Nifty Gateway, where they sold out in 10 seconds for thousands of dollars. Unfortunately, the sale also consumed 8.7 megawatt hours of energy. Um, as he later learned from a website called Crypto Art WTF. Um, this figure is equivalent to two years of energy use in the Mercier studio. Um, since then, the art has been resold, requiring another year's worth of energy. The tally is still climbing. The problem, as Le Mercier saw it, went way beyond himself, and his fellow artists were becoming millionaires overnight as the crypto world exploded. But so was their role in emitting carbon. Um, there we go. And then there's a load more about, um, you know, how crypto art works and whatever. The uh, the frightening bit there is uh, simply that, that um, unknowingly, um, and much to his chagrin, you know, his idea to sell off some digital art as non-fungible uh, blockchain um, objects uh, consumed 8.7 megawatt hours in about 10 seconds, which is... Um, Shocking to say that that's quite a lot of energy. That's a lot of energy. <laughs> well, as it says, two years worth of his actual, you know, energy use. Um, yeah, dear oh dear, it's um, difficult, isn't it? What it's one of the difficult things about doing the right thing about, about climate change and all that sort of stuff is just knowing the right thing to do because sometimes we may try to do something that actually makes things worse, yes, um, unintentionally. Um, exactly. because, uh, and a lot of it has to do with the scale of the fact that it's just so many of us. I find it surprising that you know, people, you know, what people will spend their money on. I mean, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> I know what you mean, Jim. It's yes. Not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not something tangible you can get your hands on, is it? It's, no, it's no. not. Yeah. I think it's... I think a lot of these things, I'll be honest, a lot of these things come down to, you know, in effect, they're bubbles. When it first starts, it's, you know, ooh, this is cool, and you're, you know, you've got lots of money to spend. I'll buy this because it's, you know, I can, and, I can. It's, yeah. and it's new, and it's different, mm -hmm. and it's, you know, this crypto art, as they're calling it. Um, uh, it ends with saying, uh, in the meantime, Le Mercier is happy to be re-entering the physical art world, which uh, is becoming easier as the pandemic restrictions ease. 
Um, last week, he opened a solo show in Madrid and took the train. So there you go. But um, I'm pretty sure he's pretty annoyed about that. Unwittingly um, <laughs> burning, you know, two years worth of energy in 10 seconds. Um, but I mean, we've, we've all seen these things about cryptocurrencies and the vast amounts of energy they are burning, um, which is all very frightening, really. Uh, I don't know what else to say about it. Uh, there we are. But that's a frightening story, put it that way. Anybody got anything else to say about that, Steve? No, um, I, I wouldn't want to pay his electric bill after seeing that after beginning <laughs> down so cheap. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's a lot of energy. He's it is. using, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Well, I, I, I can understand that because I guess from what they're what they're talking about is, you know, I'm sure by his studio is not, a, you know, a French garret studio. It's probably no, a huge bloody no. factory, and he's probably got huge rendering farms and Lord knows what. Um, to, you know, create his works on. Um, I mean, it's just, you know, let's praise the guy. I mean, he, you know, committed to reducing his energy use by 10% per annum, which is pretty good. Um, yeah, that's very admirable. Yeah. And, you know, I guess, like like they say at the end, he, you know, he went to Madrid on the train. I assume that was that sort of thing, you know, right, I shan't fly to New York. If I don't have to, I won't. Yeah. Um, and, and that's all very laudable and very good and um, very unfortunate for him, I think, that, uh, you know, an idea to experiment with, digit, you know, this sort of crypto art, which, yeah, to me is like the black, it's a bit like the black tulip or the South Sea bubble. Well, I, I find a lot of this stuff to be a bit like, really, in 20 years time, people will look back and go, <laughs> mugs. <laughs> or maybe not. Maybe I'll be horribly wrong as usual, and it will. Everybody will be buying everything in bitcoins. There'll there'll always be people out there, who, as you say, have got more money than sense and will want to buy something that no one else has. Yeah, it, it, it's just that, isn't it? <clears throat> I mean, it, in that article, well, I didn't, you know, I didn't read all of it, but there was a, a a bit where they're saying, you know, what is the point? And they're saying if you have the non fungible token for a piece of art, right? Even if it's a digital piece of art, it's um, it's like having you know a verified artist signature, and everybody else can have yeah. the same video, right? They could go and download that video. In fact, probably the one that's on the page of the rotating uh, dodecahedron, and have it on your desktop or on your computer, and it will cost you nothing. But you don't have a thing that says the artist made it and specifically sold it to you. Uh, yeah. Whether you think that's, as they said, having a you know a reproduction of a Matisse. It doesn't make it worth the, as much as a Matisse, but again, whether that's whether that's actually um, something you consider to be of great worth is another matter. Um, yeah, absolutely, it's very subjective, isn't it? I, I think that's the, the same thing. You know, so many of us have uh, all over the world have prints of famous art by famous artists, and we're quite happy to have them. You know, and we might be paid anywhere between I don't know five and five hundred quid for them, depending on what sort of prints and what quality they are and so on. But some people absolutely have to have the original from the artist's hand and then they pay 50 million quid or something to own the sunflowers by, you know, Van Gogh. Most of us are happy to just have a, you know, a poster from the museum that we paid a fiver for. There That's we are. right. Or a, a, or, or, or a kid's um, drawings on the, on the fridge. Exactly, <laughs> you know, is you know which it, probably mean which probably mean much more to most people. Yes, it's um, yeah. I mean that's a philosophical you know debate, isn't it? Is is you know Van Gogh's original uh, painting 
realistically really worth you know a billion times more than a than a print thereof but there we go i'm not going to get into that <laughs> i'm not going to get into that that's a that's a that's a thorny subject um and the last one we've got really um is Chinese hacking spree hits an astronomical number of victims. Um, and this is because uh, the attack uh, is tied to Microsoft Exchange servers. Um, unfortunately, because they are very large and very, you know, prominent, um, Chinese hackers were actively targeting Microsoft Exchange servers. Um, the cybersecurity community warned that a zero-day vulnerabilities might have allowed them to hit countless organizations around the world. Um, now it is becoming clear just how many email servers they have hacked. Um, the group known as Hafnium have breached as many victims as they could find across a global internet, leaving behind backdoors to return later. Um, there That's we go. That's a bit of a problem. It is a bit of a problem. Um, Hafnium has Depending now... Depending on how, how important your email is, of course. Well, I... I... As a company. And they have... Uh, right, they have exploited zero-day vulnerabilities in Exchange Server's Outlook web access to indiscriminately compromise no fewer than tens of thousands of email servers. The worrying thing is uh, this, the, you know, this kind of hacking can lead to people dying. Yeah. Yeah. It's um, not just you know, uh, computer stuff that's going to get affected. It's, it can actually cause people to die because it's, it's saying here... Um, it, you know, organisations that were compromised include local local government agencies, police, hospitals, COVID response, energy, transportation, airports and prisons. So there's a multitude of things there that could eventually cause someone to die yep. uh, because of hackers. Yeah, it's worrying. Um, it's, you don't, you know, we don't really know, as far as I can see, exactly what it was they were doing, other than that, you know, they are planting back doors all over the place. Because the other thing about this is if you're compromising email servers for whatever purpose, and I'm sure they don't really care about my email or your email, but if I send an email to you, Jim, it may well go through a compromised, you know, um, Microsoft Exchange server. Not because I'm using it, but because somewhere along the line, someone is using one. Um, <laughs> there you go. Uh, while the hacking can campaign may be aimed at casting a wide net before filtering targets for espionage, a security researcher who spoke to Wired said it might have disruptive effects. If they were to push ransomware out to this, we're going to have the worst day ever. Um, there you go. It's a little bit like that story from last week, was it, or the week before, about the, um, the uh, was it a Trojan that had been planted, uh, but, but no one had actually activated it? Oh, yes, it? that was the... Um, yeah. The red sparrow, uh, no, silver sparrow. That's right. Well, it's a little bit like that in some ways, isn't it? They've got in, they've done something, which would mean that they can come back later and do more stuff. So that seems to be, it seems to be something that hackers are doing at the moment, mm. sort of planting, planting vulnerabilities for later use. Um, yes, uh, in the uh, New York Times, I've got a link to a New York Times uh, article, which is, you know, about the same thing. Thousands of Microsoft customers, customers may have been victims of hack tied to China. Um, yeah, they don't really appear to have done anything very much. They seem to have compromised tens of thousands of Microsoft uh, Exchange servers, and yet they don't appear to have done very much other than plant a back door. Um, 
which seems very weird. A bit like the Silver Sparrow, which was quite weird. You know, we've infected a load of a load of things and then done nothing with it. Yeah, I mean, I I suppose ideally you don't want ideally you don't want anyone to find that that you've done that. No, you don't. You know what I mean? Because obviously, <laughs> the, then you can come back later and do whatever you need to do. You know, because the um like the Silver Sparrow thing is now useless. It's been shut down. Yeah. My only thought about that, which I said on the show at the time, is I, I, unless they let out some sort of proof of concept to see if their, you know, attack worked, and it just ran away out of control. And um, mm. but this, this isn't. This is would appear to be a deliberately, uh, you know, engineered massive attack. Um, oh yes, it does look like that. And almost, yeah. Sorry, Steve. No, it's okay. I was going to say. I think it's. Probably early stages, like kind of like the solar wind incident, isn't it? Where that wasn't caught until a lot later. So maybe they were hoping it'd be like that. Yeah, I think very much so. I think that's very much what they were hoping. And of course, if you've compromised tens of thousands of servers somewhere along the line, no matter how many, um, you know, warnings Microsoft put out and security people put out and, you know, uh, uh, government agencies are told to patch and, you know, update and all sorts of things and check and remove any signs of this um, intrusion, you know that out of those tens of thousands, there will it still end up being a few hundred that end up remaining compromised. Um, so who knows? That's a very frightening story. In a way, it's a proof of com- a proof of concept. They're showing that they can do it. That is also true. You know, they just really what you know. That's um, gunboat diplomacy, isn't it? You know, mm-hmm. look, look, we, you know, we've done this. If we decided to weaponize that, um, as a bloke, you know, as that bloke said, you'd have the worst day ever because we'd bring, mm-hmm. probably bring down internet worldwide, or not at least email worldwide. Never mind what <laughs> other what other havoc you could um, you could wreak. There we are. Um, and that's pretty much all of it, to be honest. Uh, I've got um, a worth a chirp um, via my daughter, uh, Danielle. Um, and that is um, a link to Duke of Cases iPhone adapter case, which is uh, um, from a small company uh, on Etsy, link in the show notes, who produce um, what is effectively a key fob designed to store your lightning to uh, 3.5 millimeter adapter if you are a person who you know has a nice set of uh, you know 3.5 millimeter headphones that you would like to use with your iPhone or your iPad um, and those little dongles they might not be very expensive but they sure are uh, slippery little beggars and they have a tendency to disappear because they're <laughs> very very small um, so there you go I have a link here to Duke of Cases iPhone adapter case um it's a pretty much the only product they sell and at the moment it is in the uk uh reduced in price to 13 pound 61 um which is a little bit pricey but then again if you keep losing your uh your adapters which might not be that expensive but you know they're expensive enough if you lost three or four of them you'd be down by 20 odd quid so um there we are um, and I have uh, spoken to the owner um, who makes this product, and at some point they will come on the show and talk to us about it. So that's nice. So I found something uh, something really useful uh, yesterday. You know, it's wonderful, isn't it, when you stumble across something that does does something for you that just makes life so much easier. And um, and this was um, it's an app written by a company 
PTZ Optics. So this is the camera I have down at church. And um, it's basically an app for the iPhone or the iPad called PD, PTZ Camera Control, I think. Um, and basically it gives you a granular control over the camera. Um, as long as you're on the same Wi-Fi network, it uses something called the VISCA, V-I-S-C-A protocol um, to control the camera. So as long as the camera supports that protocol, and what it does is it gives you a number of buttons on your iPad, uh, which you can have put presets on. So, you know, zoomed in, zoomed out, you know, move move around the building, um, all that sort of thing. But it also gives you a, a representation of a little um, control stick so that you can move things manually. Uh, and it gives you settings so that you can control how smoothly it moves and what speed it moves at. It's a really cool little um, app. Um, the the software that came with the camera that I bought is a bit it's a bit of a blunt tool really. Right. Yeah, it it works. You, you, but, you can um... do you can do presets, but they tend to move very fast, and um, there's no way of controlling the speed or. Um... So this is a really really cool tool. I'm definitely going to be putting it to some use. So it costs a tenner. Okay. So it's not the very cheapest of uh, apps, but for what it does. It's a really good tool. What's it called? I think it's called PTZ Camera Control. Hold on, let me just grab uh, my iPhone. Isn't it? Uh, where is it? Oh, no, it's not. It's not called that at all. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's how good my memory is. It's called Pan Tilt Zoom. Pan Tilt Zoom. And Available on the App Store. Find it on the App Store. Jolly good. And it's a it's a, a tenor for you know both iPad or iPhone or it's just just a tenor for it works on both. Pan tilt zoom on the App Store. Uh, if you're going to search for that, apparently no spaces. That's no. right. Yeah, and obviously it's no good if you haven't got a pan tilt zoom. Well, obviously, <laughs> of, of course, but you know, it's not you... worth an awful lot then. But if you have, it's uh, yeah, it's cool, cool little uh, program. So well, well done, PTZ, PTZ Optics for yep. producing that. That's uh, well worth uh, putting in there. So I'll put that in there. Jolly good. Well, you know, that is definitely worth a chirp. That is what worth a chirp is for. Well, chaps, I think we're probably done. Uh, so let's uh, let's wrap it up, I guess. Um, let's start with Jim. Uh, well, you can, you can find me in the, uh, the Slack room um, on Flickr as the SRPS paint shop. And if you're interested, we have a Slack group. Um, um, Flickr as well. Flickr group, yeah. Sorry, I'm a bit... <laughs> feeling a bit rusty. Yeah, that's all right, mate. Don't... <laughs> yeah. Um, and, uh, well, basically, if anybody's interested, all the links are in the show notes anyway, um, under Jim's, uh, you know, Jim's links. But, uh, yeah, jolly good, Jim. Nice to have you back on, mate. There we go. Um, Steve? Uh, you can find me, as always, on Twitter at geekcorner underscore UK. And we're just actually revamping our website. We're changing over to uh, geekscorner.info. Um, and that's actually launched this week as well. So if ever you'd like to check that out. Oh, cool. Right. So I need to change your link then, don't I, in your bio? Yeah, yeah. Okay, geekscorner.ing. Okay. Yes, fresh new design. Okie dokie. Jolly good. Right, I will change. Oh, the only thing I'd say about that, uh, Steve, hint from me, 
um, I've just picked an article at random. I think you need to reduce the tint of the grey in the background. Okay, I'm working on that today. I'll just say that. Yeah, you've got on my screen, um, the text is kind of black and grey, and the background grey is... Oh, yeah, that is quite... Uh, uh, I yeah. think you need to tone yeah, the doesn't... background down a bit, yeah. It's yeah, all, it's all right. It's all right where you've got headlines, but I think in the smaller text, it gets the, the contrast. Is If you had poor eyesight like me, you might struggle to read it. That's just, no yeah, not, yeah, it feels as if the uh, feels as if the letters are running a bit into one another somehow. Yeah. That's OK. Right, yeah, no yep. yeah. Thank you. That's it. That's, uh, you know, constructive criticism, not not having a go. Nice sight, though. Always I like, welcome. I like the way the site works. Yes. It's nice. I like it. Uh, as I say, that would be my only criticism. Or, you know, I see when I look at the... Um, where you've got like the home page here, where you've got boxes with all the articles in, that level of grey is fine. But when I um, click through, the background is probably twice the twice the strength. I'd tone that down if I was you. No problem. Thank you very much. That's that's my only, you know, that's my professional um, <laughs> designer <laughs> input for you. There you go. Um, other than that, very nice. Very nice. I like it. I like it. Mm. It's clean and crisp and everything's nicely, um, you know, clear what's what. There we go. Um, so, uh, Nick? Uh, yeah, you can also find me in the Slack room. And I'm occasionally on Twitter as Spligosh, S-P-L-I-G-O-S-H. Indeed. And sometimes on Bart's show when he doesn't record in the middle of the night. <laughs> yes, which he hasn't done recently. <laughs> I know. Uh, I'll be fair, as he said, uh, the last few months, because he's moved house. Um, uh, right, okay. He's, so moved, he's busy. He's busy and, um, yeah, he had a load of work to get done, I believe, um, on the house. Right. He's bought. So he's a bit restricted. Um, once once he's dealt with that, he's hoping to go back to a, you know, a more flexible timings. But there we are. Um, that's fine. Um, yeah, and uh, he's just put out the... Um, the February uh, Let's Talk Apple, by the way, which is worth listening. Um, really good. He's got uh, Chuck Joyner and Alison Sheridan as his guests. So oh, that should a, be entertaining. That was an entertaining listen, indeed it was. So, you know, if you're not familiar with it, go over and listen to Bart's Let's Talk Apple, his monthly review of the news. Um, there we are. Um, you can, of course, find me on the Twitter as at Serenak, and that's S-E-R-E-N-A-K. Um, that's my personal Twitter. Um, all sorts of stuff turns up on there. Uh, if you want to just follow the show, that's at Essential Apple, unsurprisingly. And uh, all the stuff is on EssentialApple.com. Um, as usual, thank you to everybody who supports the show. Thank you for listening. Um, reviews. We haven't had a review for a year now. Somebody send us a review, please. <laughs> please send us a review. Um, but there we go. No, other than that, uh, I think we will call that a day. Links to the Slack room if you want to join uh, in the madness there are uh, in the show notes as ever. And uh, I think we'll call that a show. So until next time, goodbye. Bye. Cheerio. I'm going to mask. Bye. You've been listening to the Essential Apple Podcast. And I'd like to say if you enjoy the show and would like to support us, feel free to go over to the website essentialapple.com and you will find links to both Patreon and the Pinecast Tips Jar where you can make a donation towards the costs of the show. Uh, or even if you're really keen, you could set up a recurring payment. 
And thank you very, very much to all the people who already do support us. We really do appreciate you very much indeed. This show is, of course, part of the My Mac Podcasting Network, where you can find a variety of other shows like the My Mac Podcast with Guy and Gaz, the G-Men, Tech Fan with Tim and David, the Nintendo Club Podcast, the Geekiest Show Ever, the Three Geeky Ladies, uh, Bart Bouchotts and his wonderful Let's Talk Apple, and possibly some more that I've forgotten. So why not go over to mymac.com, take a look at the available podcasts, and take a listen. Arizona is never late, Frederick Beggins. Was he early? He arrives precisely when he means to, and usually listening to the Tech Fan Podcast with Tim Robertson and David Cohen. Until then, goodbye.